welcome to episode four of Think Aloud, where you'll hear from the people shaping art and culture today. My name is Harriet Fitchlittle, and today the strapline for our podcast has a particularly apt and accurate significance because we really will be hearing from the people who are shaping culture because here in the Artists Bar at the South Bank Centre, we have brought together a panel of four programmers at the South Bank Centre to answer your questions and a few of mine about what goes into programming at a huge multi-venue location like this. Now, in most episodes of Think Aloud, we do a burning question. You can think of this episode as an entire bumper pack of burning questions. So if you have ever wanted to find a crowd that will be receptive to the joke, how many curators does it take to change a light bulb? Here is your audience. Answers on a postcard, please, because I don't have a good one yet. Today is National Ask Curator Day. It's a social media phenomena that has been going for about the past decade, where the public are encouraged to ask curators questions about what goes on behind the scenes at their institutions. From what I remember from last year, it descended into an all-out battle concerning who would win in a fight between the Natural History Museum and the National Science Museum, so Spitfires versus dinosaurs. Hopefully we will have a slightly more civil conversation around the table today. I'm joined around the table in the artist's bar by four experts in the field, two of whom I have spoken to before on this podcast. I'm joined by Bengi Unsal, who was in our first ever recorded episode about Meltdown. She's the Southbank Centre's senior contemporary music programmer. And I've also got Devo Ammon with me, who was in our Man Booker 50 episode and is the literature programmer. Uh, two new faces around the table. Uh, Rupert Thompson, hello. Hello. Who is senior programmer for performance and dance. And Jessica Chirassi. Hello. <laughs> who is curator and the co-author of Who's Afraid of Contemporary Art, who previously worked with the Hayward Gallery. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for staying after hours. We have some Prosecco here to make you feel like it was slightly worthwhile. Although you've all bought coffees, which suggests that it's been a long day here <laughs> on the banks of the Thames. I wanted to begin to kind of get to know a bit more about what each of you do within your field. I wanted to start by asking, what challenges do you think you each face in curating that your colleagues that sat around with you today don't face what's specific and I'm gonna come to Bengi first because you were saying before we turned on the mics that you thought you had a far harder job than just putting down a glass of water on a table <laughs> so. <Come> on. <laughs> um I didn't say harder but um yeah <laughs> so you program contemporary I program music contemporary music across the site here at South Bank Centre. So what contemporary music means here is everything that is not classical music, from jazz to rock to indie to electronic music and all the other genres and cross-genres. So what you're saying is you've got a lot to do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm very happy about, to be honest. The challenges. London is like the hub for contemporary music mm. and it is a very competitive field. Every day there's something happening. Of course, I'm sure my colleagues have this, maybe they might say they have the same challenges, but I think it's more of a competitive field because of the number of the events that are happening. Availability is always a problem. Mm. Having specific dates to program for here is a big problem. And also we have three venues plus the Queen Elizabeth Hall foyer. So my challenge is to come up with music that is appropriate for these venues as well. 
And who would like to jump in and present a competing claim over what's specifically difficult about their field? <laughs> Chipping in as Rupert Thompson uh, from the point of view of performance and dance. Um, there's a couple of things Beggy's talked about which would definitely carry over into my area as well. And in a similar way, but a different way, dates are also a challenge. But for performance and dance, something that's a particular thing we have to think about is the extended setup time. Performers often need to rehearse in a space. There's often a very specific arrangement with lighting, maybe even a set. So that's something on a very practical basis, but it's not unheard of to have two days set up or, uh, or more before you can even present a show. And that's if it's already been made. So, yeah, thinking that through with the excellent production team we have here is always something to do carefully. And Debo, is it true that all you do is put out a bottle of water and put a few PowerPoint slides together? It's true. I like to think that it's uh, it, it's not, <laughs> uh, but no, no, it's it's <laughs> not. Uh, so I think from a literature point of view, um, there's two things really. I think the first challenge is that unlike I think with uh, music and a performance and dance not all writers are naturally performative um, so just because someone's written a book that a lot of people love doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be on stage in front of people talking about it or that they're necessarily it, that it comes easy to them um, so that always has to be taken in consideration um, in terms of how you then format an event um, with different writers I think particularly to the South Bank Centre though the literature team also uh, programs into pretty much all of our festivals apart from Meltdown. We also do collaborations with Hayward. So you find yourself as a literature programmer having to become an expert on something in quite a short amount of time um, so that you can put together a panel to talk about a subject that, you know, six weeks before you probably didn't know anything about. Uh, I can see Benki's face. <laughs> as if we don't feed into the festivals. <laughs> Well, speaking of Hayward, Jessica, you used to work at the Hayward Gallery and in a way you have the greatest claim here to curating as a title because art is the genre that's gathered around this table where we most think of the term curating. It gets used a lot now, but art is perhaps where we most it's most associated in our brains. So mm -hmm. is curating for art a particularly complex and nuanced task? I mean, I, I would hesitate to say uh, that it's more complex in in visual arts as a medium than, than in any other art form, but definitely the challenges are different. I mean, what we've just been talking about in terms of becoming an expert in a short space of time definitely rings true for me, not just in terms of research and learning about different aspects of the art world or different topics that an artist might be exploring, but also in terms of production and technically so just thinking back at my uh, over my time at the Hayward some of the things I had to become an expert in in a short space of time have ranged from the life cycle of a silkworm <laughs> uh, figuring out how to show a thousand silkworms in the Hayward gallery for a period of three months what they eat where you find them how you keep them alive <laughs> um, so so that was one thing I mean it's one of the great challenges and it's one of the things that for me keeps it most exciting you, you know you study art history and you never imagine that one day it might lead you to becoming a silkworm expert but um, but it has and it's been wonderful nice moves in mysterious <laughs> yes. ways 
And so the three of you currently at the South Bank Centre, you are technically not curators, you are programmers. What's the difference? I don't think there's a difference, to be honest with you. But yeah, I mean, curator is not used for music programmers, but it is actually being used for Spotify playlist makers. <laughs> like that. So I think if you can pl curate a playlist, we definitely can qualify as curators. Yeah, it is an interesting one. I, I would say certain festivals which have a very strong vision and aesthetic that works through the choice of the work as well as the work that the the works themselves, you might say, more fit a curatorial model. Whereas working for a big national institution like the South Bank Centre, that to me, in a sense, the term programmer actually fits. It reminds me of the idea of a television broadcaster or programmer who needs to choose what the channel is going to look like over a span of time. And do you guys get riled up when the term curation is used by Whole Foods to describe choosing organic vegetables? Love it. <laughs> Personally, I'm not stuck with like on words yeah. so I'm looking at Debo <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, no, yeah the well, words man Debo yeah, I guess from my point of view no for someone who works in literature I'm not uh, well actually I can't say I'm not pedantic I, I, I actually am uh, to tell the truth um, but no for me curation is the idea of selection with um, a singular vision in mind um, so you can curate anything I think there is a difference between what um, Rupert Bengi and I do uh than to what the Hayward curators do in terms of um, I'm generally not cu I'm not curating because I'm not working towards a singular vision um, in terms of like TV is actually a really good analogy to use so we have various dates over the year and that we want to make a program feel a certain way and to present certain work towards our, to our audiences however it's not that you know I'm trying to take you on a present one singular theme through that work that's you know going to amplify via each event our events are almost singular a bit like how you would program tv and you're trying to hit various different audiences with them so that everyone is um catered for but if you're going to curate vegetables if you want to give someone the uh if whole foods wants to you know I don't know, curate uh, a vegetable patch. Who am I to, to, <laughs> to stop that? <laughs> so does it need to have a theme attached to it? So I would say, it's, I don't know if it's necessarily thematic, but it definitely needs to have a focus um, and not like one that's too general or ephemeral. So if you think of any good and this is just my opinion but if you think of any good exhibition that you've been to um whether it was a group show or if it was you know um a singular artist show often the artist would have a lot more works than what's actually shown in that particular exhibit so what makes it a good show is that they're tell telling you some sort of story about that artist and their work so um Hayward has one on drag at the moment and there's so much around drag um uh, specifically whether in photography or just in art in general um yeah it's quite a small exhibition so for me the curatorial vision is what's the story that they're trying to tell about drag in this particular exhibition I would say with the literature program, the theme for the literature program is that we want to bring great literature to audiences. Um, that's not enough of a, mm -hmm. a vision in terms to, for me to call it curation. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I mean, for me, the, to use the word curating suggests that there's some sort of art to it, that there's something extra rather than just the kind of nuts and bolts of, of the role. And I think 
across programming, the nuts and bolts of the role are always the same. I, I wouldn't say it wasn't curating at all, but I, I would kind of preserve that word for when there's a kind of extra magic added, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. I Just for the sake of argument, argument <laughs> I'm going to disagree. <laughs> yeah, because you can just like pick and choose anything that is available for that date but that doesn't mean that you're curating but if you're mm. curating something if you have a, you can have a singular vision in mind when you're programming for instance contemporary music but then you can say i'm going to do this much of this type of events for these audiences and these much of events for these audiences and if you look at the whole picture is going to mean something yeah, I think yeah. it's how you approach it. Like I would say what you do with Meltdown and what we do with um, London Literature Festival is much more akin to programming. But in terms of from a literature perspective, and um, anyway, it's just outside the London Literature Festival, I'm not necessarily thinking about the connection from event to event beyond it being just great work. Um, but I would say that's curating because you're bringing some of... I mean, you are curating for an audience, but you are bringing some of what you think makes great work to what you choose. You're not ticking boxes. Yeah, I guess it's not binary. And can artists do it? Bengi, I was thinking about that when you're talking about Meltdown. Mm -hmm. Meltdown, in a way, hands over the curatorial reins to a different musician every year who curates their lineup. And this is increasingly popular as a thing for big venues to do to get in big names and Anthony Gormley was here last year curating an exhibition inside. I I imagine if I was a curator, I'd have slightly mixed feelings about handing over this very delicate art form, or maybe not, depending on your opinion. I program slash curate the curator. Oh, fine. (laughs) Now it comes out. (laughs) It dances to you too. This feels like you're Jimmy Iovine. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't, I don't have any problems with that. Of course, sometimes I would prefer to be... I always wish to be involved as much as I can because we know the venues, we know the audiences more than they do. I think it's very interesting to see the world through their eyes. Mm. Yeah, so I'm fine with that. One question we were asked by our listeners is Nick from Swindon... I feel like I'm doing a radio call-in show now, but Nick from Swindon wants to know about how personal preference shapes programming, which is a very complex question. Maybe we can answer it with specific examples of things that you've programmed because of your love of them, and maybe also, if anyone's brave enough, the flip side of things that you program despite not having a natural affiliation for for the thing. Happy to come in on that one. It definitely feeds into my role quite a lot. Um, Before I was working at Southbank Centre, I was artistic director of a venue called Summer Hall in Edinburgh, which was a very particular venue running out of the old vet school of the university, very atmospheric buildings with a range of spaces that were all of relatively similar size from 60 to around 150. And there it felt much more like you could, to some extent, direct a vision and a style that would work for a programme or a curated compilation of stuff that would have a feel and a totality to it that was appropriate to a space like that at a context like that the other aspect of that was a big part of the work was during the Edinburgh Fringe when there is an absolutely dedicated audience of art lovers just waiting to, for something that that they can 
savour and they already know they want that. Whereas in a context like South Bank Centre, yeah, as I said before, you've got this kind of national responsibility and, um, you know, we're all very committed to bringing in people who don't necessarily know that they want art and culture already. And so you've got to get the balance right between, of course, you know, we're not doing a job by numbers here. It's a creative exercise and, you know, your passion should come to the fore if you want people to be passionate themselves about what's going on. To me, it has nothing to do with my personal preferences. A tool? Yeah, at all. I mean, I've been, I've been doing this. <laughs> I've been doing this. Selecting. You're just a pure machine. <laughs> no, no, not a machine. But really, it's just if I programmed the things that I listen to at home, it would be. I think it would be good programming, but it would be just for a specific type of. Be amazing. <laughs> maybe I don't know. I I I really have been doing the selecting thing for so long now. And I started out with like TV, music TV, and then record labels. So I kind of learned along the way that it's not about me, but it's about the people. So of course there are stuff that I book, that I program that I love and listen to at home, but probably I would say 80% of it is, has nothing to do with it. But it is always good quality stuff that we should be presenting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the underlying factor. I can't say completely that I work in exactly the same as Bengi does, but I do make a separation between what I think is good and um, what I like. Um, mm. So a natural one would be, so I think everyone in our team and everyone's going to program things that they're particularly passionate about. Um, at some point, the percentages of how much of the program that is will vary. Um, but so for London Literature Festival, but also as part of the literature team, uh, my colleague B and I also do the literature program for Imagine Festival, which is for children, um, zero to 12. I haven't been zero to 12 for a very long time now. <laughs> um, so I can't say I have a particular affinity mm -hmm. to children's you know, literature of that sort. However, it's understanding what's good and trying to put myself in the mindset of, yeah, if I was a child, would I like this? But it's not about, do I, is this for me now? Because it's obviously not, and I'm obviously not the audience it's supposed to be reaching. So it's being able to, and I think that's a big part, like often, I think whether it's curating, programming, whatever you want to call it, people often think that it's just about you reflecting your taste on audiences. But Bengi is right that it's not necessarily about you. And um, it is more about understanding, number one, what's good, and then who the audiences are. When I look at it, I'm not necessarily programming them from a fan point of view, but more from a programmer point of view. Uh my level when you're sort of assistant curator or curator as I am for a collection you know you don't get to choose <laughs> I mean the, the work is the work and you know you sort of have to get on with things um, and certainly all the artists I work with I think are good but not necessarily it's, is it the art that I like or that really uh, motivates me but certainly I think as you kind of uh, are curating your own shows, um, senior curators, directors of museums, um, that personal preference really does have to come through as a defining feature of of their curatorial practice. I mean, if you think for a show at the Haywood, you might be working on it for a year, you'll work very closely with that artist, or if it's a solo show, or if in the case of putting together a group show, it's really your vision. And so that 
really has to has to carry through and you have to feel that within within the show and see it in the in the final product I think you can tell I think you can tell and how does social media influence all of this this is a question from Ellen in Southampton and I don't just want answers that talk about social media amplifying the work that you do social media does play a role in how things get made I mean Diva I feel like this with books book covers a lot there's a huge influence and a brilliant influence that social media has on like books have become cool again to a certain extent via Twitter. <laughs> but how does social media and thinking about how things will play online, and I suppose in the press more generally, but that in particular, how does that affect what you program? It's not necessarily about amplification because I don't think there was ever a time when books weren't cool. I think it was just that um, it was harder to find your tribe. Uh, so now what I find with social media is that because of the way literature works at the South Bank Centre and that we can go anything from a space that will a capacity of 150 to around 2,500 is that you can program something that's really quite specific mm. that you may not have been able to prior to social media because before when you program it you know the audience is there even if they are quite niche and specific however you can also reach them now so you can both see that it has traction and you can reach those people who want it and that's not necessarily about amplification it's just knowing that the audience is there that finding your tribe yeah i think that's a great thing reading is quite personal and i'm not sure everyone feels like that about their own art form um but in that sense that for me a book almost replaces your thoughts because if you're reading on your own you're generally not reading out loud so you're reading in your head and so you can't think something else and read so the only thoughts going through your head are the words of an author and if that resonates with you you are finding someone who thinks like you and their thoughts for the span of that book become your own. Jessica this must be different for you for example because with an exhibition what you need is footfall from the general public over mm -hmm. a period of a couple of months so these very niche audiences coming together for one evening as facilitated by social media isn't such a pull is that correct i wouldn't say so um well i think it's it's a question of a sustained social media presence so um and i think more and more exhibitions we think of punctuating them with regular events um mm. and having those be extra draws to come and see the show because we've all been there that the show runs for three months and you think oh I've got plenty of time and then it's suddenly closing next week and you miss it so I think more and more there's a turn towards um, live events within the exhibitions world as well um, to get people talking to, to get people talking and to add an extra incentive to to visit but not to mention that performance is amazing <laughs> and all of this <laughs> and all the other good reasons <laughs> um, but um, from that perspective so I mean I, I have to say um, I'm saying this all from the perspective of a person who definitely has not mastered social media <laughs> and is very aware that I need to kind of get up to speed but I will say that a lot also happens without social media um, am I allowed to say that is that okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, you know life goes on things still happen people still come so um, it, it is part Instagram, of it. It didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rupert and Peggy, I want to turn to you for the negatives, if there are any. I don't have a negative <laughs> to offer immediately, to be honest. But I was going to say, I mean, I'm quite quiet. Thank you, Daz. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite quiet on social media myself in terms of putting messages out there. But 
I feel lucky that my my Facebook feed has ended up being like a kind of really fascinating and surprising magazine. You could um, call it curated. Well, I, I mean, the, the algorithm's doing me a favour, you know, but it's those, I guess, those artists, those producers, those contacts I'm in touch with are putting up stuff that's really interesting. And it's rarely the finished product. It's rarely, here's my show, come and see it. It's much more, this is what I'm interested in. These are the conversations that are going on. An, an important aspect of curatorship or programming is to feel like you're in touch with what's going on with the zeitgeist and actually that social media constancy is really good for that of course you have to filter it but it's it is a really useful resource i mean i'm a social media person definitely full stop i mean i love instagram i think it's huge no it's not i'm not as huge as i can be (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) let's cut that Um, yeah, I'm a social media person. I love using the social media, but I think I can come up with a negative to it, which is maybe two even, which is, first of all, because of the algorithms and because of the the things that social media gives us, like the stats they give us, it is kind of easier for programmers to program certain things knowing there's an audience for it mm-hmm. because you can have a look at the stats and everything. But that means you can just become the mainstream and mm-hmm. I find it a bit dangerous. So you react to what the market already wants. Yeah, kind of. And some other people feed into that market. So record labels, the people who want to push certain artists. So you just kind of lose the marginal ones if you're following them on Spotify or Instagram. So I think it creates this danger for the programmers and the curators. If you just go th- after those audiences. There's that one negative thing that I don't like about it. I mean, what you're saying about social media sort of um, privileging some artists over others, I think that certainly applies with visual art, is that works that are very visual and very Instagrammable seem gain all of this traction on social media, and people are observing them in a very sort of flat way, in a very superficial way, um, where they often know very little about the art or what the artist's intention was or even what the art looks like from the other side. And um, it does privilege a certain kind of artwork that that looks particularly good in a frame and is very bright coloured. And, gal- and gallery curators must think about that when they're programming a show. If they've got a choice between two artists and one of them you really need to see in the flesh and one of them you can absorb in an enjoyable way via social media, surely the show goes to the second artist. Well, the the one that looks good in the flesh gets you through the door and not doesn't leave you at home on social media. If you know to get through the door in the first place, yeah. yeah to add on to that, I somehow feel that people come just to use that thing on social media and they don't absorb the art mm-hmm, 100% mm-hmm. anymore. I just see people taking photographs. To get their photo, videos. put it in their feed but, and then they leave. <laughs> but there's also now some certain artists are actually asking people to put their phones in their bags. They have this lockable bags that they... You have your phone with you, but you cannot use it. Jack White is doing it. There are other artists like getting into that hype right now. So mm. it might change. But I'm not saying that social media is bad. I think we should be doing it. We should, if we want to... Because it's a creation of some sort, just like saying something about yourself as well, mm-hmm. the way you use it. And it's fun and it's nice to produce something yourself. But then again, there, there should be a limit to it. And I sometimes feel that we pass that limit at times. I think from a 
from a literature perspective, actually, a downside is, um, I think, probably holds true for everyone, is that literature is quite a slow art form in terms of both how it's created but its consumption. Um, it just takes a while to read a book. And so I think it's also something that you're supposed to sit with. However, I do find sometimes on, like, you know, book YouTube or uh, Bookstagram or, you know, <laughs> Twitter version of it, we also live in an age where people need to have an opinion and have an opinion as soon as possible from the release of something. It's great that people want to be engaged and are. Um, however, I think people's opinions also spread and they infect other people's opinions. So if you haven't, sometimes you don't know how you feel about a thing straight away or how you feel about it transforms over time. Having to talk about it and having to express an opinion on it and solidify it because Instagram or Twitter is just as indelible as writing in a book just the way social media works you can't really change your mind and so that becomes the the narrative um of this book or piece if a lot of people you know sort of infect one another with their opinions and then that becomes what this thing is rather than it being something that can organically just transform and change with you as you grow up or just over time and which i find has happened with me like Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, I feel very differently about that book now than I did when I read it. But if there was Twitter when I read it, uh, I might not be able to admit that. <laughs> One question that we got was about stress. Jake Jake from Acton asked, what are the stress levels like when putting together an event? And I wanted to make that a bit more specific. I mean, the those of you who I've spoken to when you're putting on events, it actually seems like it's not a very stressful time once the event is actually happening because it's kind of all out of your hands to a certain extent. Now I'm getting some raised eyebrows. <laughs> so tell, um, maybe we could go around and just tell me from a practical point of view, what is the most stressful part of your job? Thank you. Deadlines, mm. ticket sales, mm. uh, budgets, and then during the uh, event, probably that everything goes smoothly, somebody is not jumping on the stage or <laughs> <laughs> the audience is fine up until the end of it. Those are the stress points we got to worry about stage diving in literature all the time <laughs> <laughs> yeah stage invasions are our favorites <laughs> premieres are pretty stressful you know if you've seen a work before and you know you know it's really good and you know it's coming in and it's going to go smoothly the stress levels are often negligible you're excited you just want to see how the audience reacts but if something's brand new work and you know it's in front of people for the first time and you've not seen it you've only been part of conversations about it that can be pretty nervy i think mine's similar to uh to bengi's I, I think the only difference would be that because it's a uh, for the most part literature is a less performative aspect although we do we do do some uh live readings um that are much more performative but outside of those in terms of your general you know author and um a chair talk the stressful ones are the ones that you've taken a punt on in terms of so the curatorial aspect of doing mm. an event like that is you're trying to curate the conversation that's going to happen mm. so often you want to put the writer with someone unexpected who isn't like a surefire yeah they're going to get along they're going to agree on everything what have you really fought for and it's come through 
I would say a good example was last year at London Literature Festival, we had Philip Pullman in conversation with Keris Matthews. Keris Matthews isn't the person you would immediately think to interview Philip Pullman on his books, but it went amazingly. And really that's because of just thinking beforehand who what similarities they have who's you know energetic and maybe just different enough that it can create that spark however when you're doing that it can go wrong (laughs) um yeah it, it really can just go wrong and that the spark is the wrong sort and you know there's tension on stage and like uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know you're balancing it on a knife edge that you want it to be you want there to be um yeah enough not not tension as such but enough difference within the the parties that are talking that something interesting can happen and that they can have a conversation that the artist hasn't had before but yeah, you can easily get that wrong. Which, yeah, you're just sitting during the event. Next. So what? Yeah, I think it's similar. Um, opening night, is, it all builds up to that. As the curator, you're at the centre of everything because everyone comes to you with every small thing that goes wrong and things always do. And it's just finding ways to keep your head and uh, think up solutions on the fly and figure out what's important and what really isn't. It ranges from, you know, the artist is not happy with their hotel to um, they've worked with some sort of experimental media and and now the work is sort of falling apart (laughs) Um, and it opens in two hours. And it's very specific. (laughs) I mean, it isn't actually that specific. We could all think of specific (laughs) examples, but it, it has gone wrong more times than you may know. That is the mark of being part of a team and thinking on your feet and relying on the people around you. A lot hangs on a knife edge the night of the opening and then and then it's all fine can i just ask that that stress for like art curation can't go away because i remember when we had gursky in which was the first exhibition in the hayward when it opened and i'd walk into the gallery so with like ryan 2 which was sold for like 1.4 million I just saw like kids running up to it and like, ah, with their hands out, <laughs> looking like they're going to touch it. And I was having a heart attack. <laughs> like, how do you deal with just. I mean, it the doesn't public? go away. It's just a different kind of stress. There's the panic stress of like when you're really tired and you're trying to hold it together and you're being thrown all of these things from left field that you've tried to. You've actually, you've really thought through everything that could possibly go wrong. And then something that you couldn't possibly have thought of happens and then there's just the kind of regular stresses of someone touching a work that you have to constantly try and curtail in any way that you can and you know you try and make the the barriers bigger and but you know the artist doesn't want it you know there's all sorts of things and that's just a kind of slow burn background stress (laughs) but you get really used to managing these these it's just part of it and I think you have to be a certain kind of character that kind of thrives on these things and is able to to deal with it and manage it and figure out which stresses are really worth worrying about and stress is a big part of what makes it great as well i think it's worth noting you know we're talking about live events or even in the case of exhibitions unpredictable audiences you know and that sense of the fact that this matters the fact that that shared space for the finite time it exists is live and important is going to add stress but it's also the magic of 
absolutely that's the thrill of it that is the amazing yeah. thing about this because sometimes i do have to take a step back and like I work in literature, like nothing that bad can happen, but it means that it just means that much to us as individuals. Because, yeah, I'm, no one's going to die if I. You know. Come on, when the drummer of your band, like main band, breaks his wrist, yeah, that's a that. huge problem. <laughs> on the day. This was like, the Libertines, wasn't yeah, it? This was the yeah. And we had that stress like, oh, throughout wow. the day. And you just like. It was unbelievable, but yeah, <laughs> there are stresses. Yeah, there are. There is. <laughs> yeah. there is you cannot that. do anything about. <laughs> we did yeah. cover this on the podcast two months ago. Whether you're checked in on the drummer since the injury, <laughs> then you said no, and still no. It's, <laughs> it's been a I'm while so now. Sorry, I, think. I really think of you at night. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, is there a particular artist who's made it stressful for any of you? I mean. No, I wouldn't say that. But yeah, there are some artists that are that make it stressful for us. What requests do you get? Um, I get really stressed when they get don't get on on the stage, and on time. That's the most stressful part for me. But in terms of requests, the thing that I remember with one artist that he asked for papayas, and everybody had to just like look for papayas, <laughs> and that was stressful. <laughs> In a way, but I was like, oh, is he not going to go on stage if he cannot get his papayas? There are also one particular artist, which is, of course, everybody know, knows her name, but I'm not going to name names, th that is a fan of champagnes and oysters. And that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love her. So. Rupert, have you got more diva-ish demands or less um, in your field? In my field, I don't think you come across too many diva-ish demands, but you do get some hilarious tech riders um, and things you have to source for we've got a show coming up with a, a full-size stuffed horse which takes some considerably we've got a show coming up with a li happily live dog which is having to be brought in via France um, uh, from from New York it's a, it's a by Paris it's it's a very privileged little dog yes um, business class traveling dog. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a premium dog. Yeah, Jessica, what about the artist? It's definitely more in the show than off it. I feel like there's no budget in the art world for for glamorous riders. <laughs> I mean, that, that's not going to fly with anyone. I mean, one of our artists asked for a bath in his hotel and we thought that was very extravagant. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, it's definitely within the exhibition. I mean, having to find having to find a prickly pear cactus in London. Um, you can find them, but they cost £200. But, you know, finding other... Other, finding other um, workable solutions for all sorts of bizarre, very specific artwork requests. I mean, I don't think oysters would fly. <laughs> I, I find the idea of like riders wild from like <laughs> contemporary music. I, I, not genuinely. Uh, so we've had like literature programmers had some very high profile people come through, and I think the most extravagant request we've got since I've been here was tea like herbal <laughs> tea because um, I mean authors aren't known to be like retiring tight they, they've got an ego on them writers but just manifests itself in different ways yeah if they do I think it's more about it's more about how people they can see people think and talk about their work more so than anything yeah in terms of like treatment and I think it's just that there is 
on a large scale so not for everyone but there's not that much money in publishing and yeah so you have things like hey festival where they treat everyone great but it still is especially in our uh non-summer summers you still are in a field that's often potentially quite muddy and quite limited in capacity the idea that a writer would want anything more than herbal tea <laughs> or a warm glass of wine is a uh, uh, <laughs> boggles the mind really I've, no I've never had a strange um, rider request let's end with a couple of quick answers from each of you first one is kind of what is the most emotional thing that you've curated have you ever cried want to hear about your tears I cried but nothing like I wouldn't say cr- curate but something that I programmed and helped program because it was back in Istanbul we had it was the last show I did for Istanbul Jazz Festival, Robert Plant, and it was in an open-air theater, 5,000 people sold out. So as soon as it started, I just looked back at the audience and started crying. It was a very emotional moment, but I haven't cried here, no. Uh, not yet. Not out of joy, at least. <laughs> or, or anything, at least. Jessica? Um, I've definitely cried out of sheer exhaustion. Like, you know, there's just that moment when it's everything has finally come together and you could just let it out um, where you don't need to, like, um, have such a firm grip of th- on things. But I've also, like, I've shed good tears, tears of pride. Debo. Sorry, I should have been thinking. That you were thinking. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess no tears. You're all very stoic for people who work in the arts, really. <laughs> uh, I guess after a while you just have to be. <laughs> so, uh, so with part of the reopening program for the uh, Queen Elizabeth and Purcell, we put on a live reading um, to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Chinua Chebe's Things Fall Apart. And that was, that was significant to me in a number of ways. Um, you know, it's a book I grew up with like it's a must read for you know Nigerian um, diasporan children well depending on your you know parents sort of thing but I come from quite um I guess I could say like Afrocentric literary family um so yeah it was definitely something that I'd read before but it was also like you know it's the it's the basic things like you know it was an event that it went really well I was really happy with it um it was amazing just looking out into the audience and seeing people really enjoy it in a visceral way um and it was quite a mammoth reading we're talking like six hours six seven hours um so like the fact that the audience stayed with it and were there but also you know just basic things like it was something that my parents would be proud of (laughs) Uh, because I don't really know if they get what I do (laughs) So, I mean, in terms of performance and dance and theatre, I mean, yeah, you you certainly get tear-jerking performances, but something that just goes straight for that sometimes feels a little limiting, and it's often when you get contradictory emotions that the things feel most effective. And a piece that came to mind as I was just listening to the others that we had here was uh, was something called uh, Prurience, which was a show last year by a brilliant uh, London-based theatre maker called Chris Green, and it was a show about porn addiction, and it had this brilliant structure that overlapped actors who were not known to other audience members to be actors and audience participation and you just got this really rich layering of reality and personal stories some of which were vulnerable some of which were funny and you just ended up in this really sort of alert awareness of what's going on in the world today 
So thank you for joining me in the artist bar. I hope the Prosecco made it slightly more welcoming. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Think Aloud. Uh, you can ask more of your own questions on Twitter today using the hashtag AskCurator if there were things here that we didn't cover. And you can hear the past episodes of Think Aloud on our website at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And you can listen to more of what goes on here at the Southbank Centre's book podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, presenter of Southbank Centre's book podcast. And in our latest episode of the podcast, I talked to Nick McCoa about how literature can give us a different perspective on the refugee crisis. And we feature Khaled Hosseini, author of The Kite Runner, A Thousand Splendid Sons, and his new book, Sea Prayer. You can find that plus other episodes of Think Aloud at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>